I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. Conventional wisdom in private equity has often gone like this. Performance persists across funds for the same partnership. But the view over the last years is mixed. One 2014 study found that post the year 2000, there was little evidence of persistence for buyout funds except at the lower end of the performance distribution. This question was addressed again recently at a roundtable sponsored by the Notre Dame Institute for Global Investing and the Private Capital Research Institute. Here, a group of limited partners, academics, and general partners shared thoughts on performance and persistence in private equity investments, and what they discussed might surprise you. Their conclusion? The once robust persistence of performance across buyout funds has weakened, along with the historic outperformance of private equity relative to the private markets. But what does this finding mean in terms of various important inputs like approaches employed in selecting fund managers, factors influencing performance in the current environment, industry trends and performance benchmarks, comparisons between venture and buyout investing, alignment issues, and the importance of culture? I asked Dr. Josh Lerner, Chair of the Entrepreneurial Management Unit and the Skiff Professor of Investment Banking at the Harvard Business School. Josh also serves as Director of the Private Capital Research Institute, a nonprofit devoted to encouraging access to data and research about venture capital and private equity. More honors. Josh is Vice Chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on the Future of Investing and was named one of the 100 most influential people in private equity over the past decade and one of the 10 most influential academics in the institutional investing world. It was a terrific conversation with Josh, so here it is. Josh, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. So let's start at the very top. How do you define persistence? And more specifically, is it something that you still look for in private equity? Well, perhaps the way to begin is to think about what's historically made private equity and venture capital different from other asset classes. And in particular, when we look at public fund investors, particularly mutual funds, what we see is that there's very little continued outperformance. In other words, if you have a mutual fund that beats its peers in a given quarter, the probability that it will beat its peers in the next quarter is pretty much 50%. That the nature of public markets being what they are, it apparently is the case that there's very little demonstrated stickiness that essentially when you flip the coin the second time, it's equally likely to come up heads or tails, win or lose. Even in mutual funds, I'm sorry, even in hedge funds, which you might think are, uh, you know, different in the sense they've got the, you know, geniuses in the back room working on the computer models and so forth and are very secretive in terms of their strategies, uh, you see that there is remarkably little persistence. In other words, it often is the case that a mutual fund that beats the market one quarter will beat the market the um, uh, beat the market the next quarter. Uh, but if you look three, four quarters henceforth, there's very little evidence of uh, continued outperformance by a winning hedge fund. So it seems that in public fund investors, whether we're looking at you know open-ended mutual funds or more secretive hedge funds. There's very little of this persistence that's evident. When it comes to p- 
private equity and venture capital. Historically, the academic literature has suggested there's been a strong amount of persistence there, that by and large, funds that have been top quartile ones have continued to be in the top quartile. And in particular, um, you know, when you look at the evidence, for instance, that was compiled by uh, one of the um, uh, one of the um, authors in the um, uh, one of the authors in the um, uh, in the in the session, uh, Rudy Stuckey, who did work with um, uh, Bob Harris, uh, Tim Jenkinson, and Steve Kaplan. This was their 2014 report. Has persistence persisted in private equity? The evidence from buyout and venture capital funds really kind of a, a landmark uh, report. But yeah, please yeah. go go on yeah, because I, I, that's yeah. one of my questions: is their pre 2000 right. and post 2000 uh, findings? Yeah, that you saw that prior to 2000. It seems there was a, you know, a, a very strong kind of persistence that was there. It was there for buyout funds, and it was there for, uh, and it was there for venture funds. And then something seems to happen, and the question is what happens. But that when we look at that subsequent period of 2001 and onward, it seems that this. Uh, very strong pattern of persistence seems to um, seems to um, seems to break down, and in particular, it's not really on the venture side where it breaks down. In the venture side, one still continues to have uh, a lot of uh, a lot of persistence going on, but when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the uh, buyout world. It is uh, a very different, uh, a very different kind of story. That it seems that uh, whereas before, if you were in the top quartile, uh, you know, in a buyout funds, in a given fund, the next fund had a 41% chance of being in the top quartile, or much higher than the 25% that you might expect by, uh, you know, by randomness. When you look at the uh, subsequent period. It's 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 much lower, perhaps on the order of thirty percent in terms of probability of the uh, probability of um, being in the top quartile. So it seems that there's been this breakdown of persistence in the business. And what was Rudy's take, and, and what did he discuss in the roundtable? And this is now you know two years hence since his uh, hit, you know his joint report came out. What what did he kind of speculate or hypothesize around that something? And what what was your interpretation of that? Did you kind of uh, agree with it? And and what was your view of what he had to say? Well, I think that this was an object, you know, was an issue which was discussed not just by the academics but also by the general and limited partners who took part in panels. And I think it's fair to say that there were a number of hypotheses offered for what we saw, but no real certainty in terms of, uh, in terms of what it is that, uh, what it is that uh, was, uh, was, 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 was driving it. And in particular, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the hypotheses uh, which was offered um, was um, that um, this was a reflection of the extreme amount of interest on the part of limited partners in private equity investing. And in particular, you know, what was argued is that in many instances, 
we've, we've seen a phenomenon where uh, groups have some initial success and do quite well. Uh, and then what happens is they attract a lot of interest on the part of limited partners who rush into the hot fund. And what ends up happening is that the returns, uh, uh, the returns uh, of the returns degrade. That you know, essentially, the as funds get larger, their ability to maintain the kind of success that they've had in the past seems to uh, seems to depreciate. Again, there was a sort of variety of suggestions offered for why that might be. Um, you know, it might be a factor that simply they end up doing larger deals, which are outside of the, you know, which are more competitive or which are in an area that they're less familiar with. They may have a strategy that works very well for modest sized transactions, but when they get to doing much larger transactions, the same tricks, the same skill sets, the same consultants no longer work as effectively. So certainly it may be that they move out of their skill set. The other possibility is that people get stretched too thinly. So essentially you get people serving on more boards, directors, doing more things, and so forth, and they become just simply less effective as a result. That, that's a sort of second explanation for what we might see. Do, do you have a, a third or additional explanation? Because otherwise I'll, I'll follow up with, a, a, you're, you're putting, as you would imagine, you know, many questions into my mind for follow-ups. So, uh, but did you have a, do you have a third or, or additional potential explanations that you wanted to touch on first? Well, I mean, another, another possibility is just that there is an element of bad timing around it, right? Which is when you think about the venture capital industry and you say, when were the largest venture capital funds raised? Well, they were basically raised in years like 1999 and 2000 and probably, you know, 2015 and 16 and 17, which I think people, you know, look back on, at least in the case of the 99-2000 period, as being, you know, the high watermark of the industry. So there's a bit of adverse selection that the time when LPs find it most attractive to invest turns out to be what, in basic, with the benefit of hindsight, to be the worst times to be doing investing. So there may be partially just this bad timing going on as well. And so given those potential explanations and and particularly the, the maybe even particularly the first two, because the, the timing one, uh, you know, it's always always so hard to, timing is always very clear in, in retrospect, maybe sometimes a little right. bit more difficult uh, in, in advance, but particularly on those first two, what is that, what does that mean? What do you, what do you see as well in terms of what that means for LPs trying to evaluate um, private equity firms and, and investment opportunities, and in the other direction, what do you what does it mean? What do you see in terms of private equity firms? I don't know if it would be positioning themselves or or marketing themselves. You know that that if persistence is declining for some, you know, as a key uh, measure. Uh, or an important, you know, or or a predictive measure, perhaps. Um, what are you seeing from the the private equity side in terms of communicating to LPs and attracting LPs, and what are you seeing from the LP side in terms of increased pressure for them uh, to find new, better ways to evaluate private equity funds? Yeah, well, I think that that, as they say, is the you know the the sixty four thousand dollar question, right? And if you can put in a bottle, what are the criterion for 
uh, evaluating the best funds, it indeed is. Um, it indeed is. Uh, you you really do have. Uh, uh, you really do have uh, something uh, uh, something uh, uh, something magical. And in particular, um, you know, one of the things that, for instance, people, uh, you know, the panel in terms of limited partners uh, raised is that some groups were like, you know, in a way we always used to rely on a strategy of same team, same strategy, same fund size. In other words, don't change anything and we'll be, we'll be, help, we'll be, we'll be happy. And in particular, the point that they raised is that given the dynamism in the market today, it's not as clear that standing still is necessarily the best strategy. And in fact, one can argue that in some cases it may actually breed complacency and that what you want is, uh, uh, is uh, you know, some degree of hunger uh, in terms of groups, in terms of you know, really adapting to different strategies and new approaches. So, for instance, one of the things that um, uh, one of the things that a number of people pointed to is saying that you know we we're looking for groups that have actually stumbled a bit and gotten into trouble and have undergone a turnaround and are really hungry to prove that they're uh, you know a once group, great group which ran into difficulties but was able to right ship rather than being one of these groups that's consigned to the you know dustbin of history. And so that that might actually be a more attractive situation than just someone who is, you know, just chugging along at a good but not necessarily great kind of a uh, uh, great kind of uh, a great kind of uh, uh, a great kind of approach. Um, you know, certainly another criterion that was raised by the limits partners is, you know, a more familiar one, which is really looking at incentive uh, in incentive um, incentive issues. Um, and, um, you know, I think that many of the LPs expressed concern, for instance, with the recent trend towards sales of equity by, uh, by, um, by um, uh, uh, general partners to, you know, you know, to investor groups, arguing that that might, in, um, uh, you know, might lead to all sorts of problematic incentives. A challenge, it, it would seem to be, so we uh, clearly, obviously, we, we live in a data-driven world, and we seek to measure everything, and, and we seek, to, many, many folks, and certainly on the investment side, many investors seek to reduce um, investment decisions down to, you know, tight measurement capabilities and, and data, and it's a, is it possible? Are you, are you potentially advocating might be too strong of a word, but is the rise of sub, is there a potential rise for subjectivity in this area and in investment decisions from LPs, particularly into the PE world? Are you potentially seeing that and a reduction of the, the ability or, or not importance, but kind of the, 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 the legitimacy of objective data or know that you would see that the challenge is we need to find new sets of objective data. If measuring persistence is no longer indicative of you know, future performance, then we still need to uh, base our investing decisions on data and something we can measure, but we now better find some new and, and improved things to measure. Great question. Not an easy answer. I think that, you know, I, I certainly am somebody who is uh, uh, 
hung my hat over the years on the proposition that you can see interesting things in data around venture capital and private equity, which allow you to better understand both the industry as a whole as well as individual investors. So I am certainly not going to be one who argues that you know data is useless for these decisions. At the same time, I think it is worth pointing out that the wrong relying on the wrong kind of data mechanically is unlikely to lead to the right decisions. You know, when we did a when Antoinette Shore and I did a paper uh, a number of years ago looking at investment decisions by a number of classes of institutional investors, we 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 looked. And one of the things we looked at is decisions to re-up with groups. In other words, saying conditional on you being in a group, in a fund, do you end up investing in the next fund or not? And what we found is that for you know the public pension funds, for instance, we could predict if they were going to reinvest or not with a very high degree of accuracy. And you might say, how could we be so, uh, you know, so you know, do we have a crystal ball to do it? No. What was really the crucial consideration for those public pensions or for their gatekeepers and other consultants who are advising them is what was the past performance of the fund? And if you had a group whose past performance was above the median, it was very likely that the, uh, that the pensions were going to re-up with the groups. Meanwhile, when it came to the... Uh, Endowments, for instance, which have historically had considerably more success in terms of both picking which LPs to invest with, I mean, which GPs to invest with for the first time, as well as in reinvestment decisions, we found that we could predict their decisions to reinvest or not much more poorly. And essentially, what we realized is that they were using, you know, it, I, I suspect that they were using a combination of a much richer data set, as well as, uh, uh, you know, considerably more soft or qualitative information in making their decisions. So I don't think the answer is that data is unhelpful. I think data can be very helpful in thinking about issues. But just simply mechanically saying we want to reinvest with the people who have done the best in the past is unlikely to get you to where you want to be. Rather, you're going to have to look at you know, a variety of information, both including quantitative information, for instance, about which partners actually did the deals uh, and are they still there? How is the carried interest being allocated across the partners in particular? How does it map up to who has actually done the deals that have created the most value, as well as the softer information that can only be gleaned through you know, a series of conversations with these groups. Have PE firms caught up on this, and do you, are you seeing a difference in, or in the way they are telling their stories, or are, are they behind the LPs, perhaps, in terms of what LPs are looking uh, to, to understand in terms of evaluation? Is there balance there? Are you, are you seeing a change in the way PEs present themselves? Well, I think the answer is that it's not a uni- there's not a one answer here. I think that you know when you look at some of the largest and most established groups in the industry, uh, one has to take one's hats off and say these are fundraising machines. They're ex- they've practiced a lot and they have very good people and they've figured out how to go and sell their various products that they're offering. 
Um, as you move to middle market funds, I think you see that in many cases the performance is much poorer in terms of do, doing this kind of storytelling. And in particular, what strikes me is that in many cases, the, you talk to managing general partners who are extremely smart people, who are, um, you know, very thoughtful, you know, extremely good deals people. But when you get them talking about their own fund and what makes their fund unique, it's remarkable how little um, ability they have to really articulate what those things are. That, you know, you, you see this at conferences, right, where you'll have four middle market guys, you know, on a panel. You'll ask them to introduce themselves for each for two minutes. And at the end of the 10 minutes of introductions, you'll be like, these guys each took the same set of words, rearranged them slightly differently, and spewed it out. And I have no no ability to really distinguish how any of these four groups are different from each other. And certainly one of the things that I've encouraged general partners to do is to, you know, think very carefully about how to position themselves strategically, which is partially quantitatively quantitative. Uh, exercise in terms of saying, how does the data tell a story of what it is that we are doing that's unique? But it's also more of a qualitative story of a process of, um, of, of storytelling and where actually getting, you know, case studies and other kinds of, uh, other kinds of things out there can really convey some of the richness as to what's, uh, what's going on. Yeah, it, it would seem to be just such a, such a central opportunity, and uh, you know, with, with your findings and and what you heard about uh, persistence, it, it certainly opens a a new door um, to opportunity for that. Um, I I, I want to remain uh, respectful of your time. I know that uh, we're we're running tight here. Um, a couple couple of the things that really struck me uh, about the roundtable that I wanted to ask you about. Um, one was uh, technology innovation. Um, there was some discussion about the role of uh, technology innovation in terms of persistence. Um, what, what was your take on that? Well, I think this is an area which is ex extremely interesting for a couple of reasons, one of which is that it is clear that um, uh, uh, a business-as-usual approach is unlikely to work going forward. In other words, if you've just got a couple of 55-year-old industry executives and you're investing in all these industries and expecting things to do as they've always done, it seems it's unlikely that that strategy is really going to work anymore, right? We've seen this in retail, right, where we've seen a whole bloodbath of uh, private equity-backed companies which try to, to, you know, basically do uh, business as um, – uh, business as usual in terms of their uh, in in terms of their uh, in terms of their approach, um, but we've also seen it in many other sectors as well. So certainly one implication of technological change is that groups have to retool and redesign their ways in which they add value and do due, due diligence on portfolio companies to reflect the fact that this is a this is a new world and that the impact of technology on even industries which seem to be very removed from uh, uh, the front lines of, 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 of IT and, um, and social media are, are very much impacted. 
so that, that's certainly one lesson that I take away from the discussion. One other point to emphasize is that um, you know, the range of industries in which private equity are likely to be playing going forward is likely to change as well. We've seen a number of examples, for instance, of deals in which private equity groups have bought companies out of the portfolios of venture capital groups, which was a kind of transaction that was almost unheard of uh, even five years ago. And I, I think we're going to likely see more blurring of private equity and venture capital in the years to come as technology uh, broadens its reach and impact. Well, that's a fascinating topic. I, and, you know, that may be the topic for a, another podcast with you at some point, because that's uh, um, that that's really a, a fascinating trend. Are, are you you are you are you seeing that? Is that something you're keeping your eye on? That trend? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 obviously early going, so it's hard to do um, you know much in terms of analytics yet. But um, fully expecting that we'll be doing a variety of research around that around that area. We've done some work in the past about private equity and innovation, and it seems like you know the way in which things are changing uh, remain uh, you know is is extremely extremely interesting today. Okay, I'll follow up with you on that in, in the future. Last question I have is um, anything that surprised you in the discussion on persistence? Anything you didn't expect? Was there a, a particular headline that, that struck you from the discussion that, that we haven't discussed? Yeah, well, I think that certainly, to me at least, one of the most interesting, uh, interesting discussions was the one of the general partners themselves. And the way in which they uh, for instance, um, emphasized the way in which successful people that they had mentored and developed had, you know, basically begun by, you know, what they described it as sitting in the broom closet. In other words, starting at the real bottom of the pyramid at their firms and working their way up and how much that was critical in terms of building and retaining a, 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 a firm culture. It's not that, um, you know, we don't know this in some sense, sense. I mean, obviously, you look at a firm like uh, Blackstone, for instance, where, you know, so many of the key leaders in the next generation are people who joined right out of Wharton or something like that and have been with the firm, you know, for, for, for decades. But I think the point which each of these firms, which has been, uh, you know, ongoing, very successful firms over the, over the decades, emphasized is how much you know, engineering goes into that creation and maintenance of a firm culture in a way that I don't think that either academics or limited partners have fully done credit for in terms of, uh, in terms of understanding while analyzing, analyzing firms. Another fascinating topic that, uh, you know, we'll have to, we, we could do a whole series of these. That, uh, that, that does sound like a, a real headline and uh, terrific insight. Josh, thank you. Thank you for your time. It's always uh, always a, a real pleasure to, to talk with you and always incredibly interesting. Thank you for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.